Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 133 unread books on my shelf. With me is my brother, Andrew. Hello there. And my husband, Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Toby, we miss you. According to Instagram, you're living it up, and we hope you're doing well. A little inside baseball. He says he's going to uh, download this podcast to edit at the Starbucks at Grand Canyon. Oh, okay, cool. I hope he doesn't get any intrusive thoughts and throw the computer into the canyon because I feel like I would have a strong sense that I needed to do that. You guys never <laughs> I feel get like that? he probably doesn't have his computer right next to it. Okay. I don't know. I feel like he'd have to then pull it out. It'd be a really like enduring intrusive thought. Every time I'm in front of like a cliff or a lake, I'm like, don't throw your phone in there. I mean, it's a copy of the file. It would be more intrusive thought if you were to go onto our computer and delete all the files before we edit it. I don't know. I don't know how the Grand Canyon's going to help you accomplish that, though. <laughs> so I just had a crazy thing happen. I just got a text that was like, hi, we are looking for Bailey. We found your credit card. We live three houses down. And I was so excited because I lost my credit card. But at the same time, how did they get my number? Maybe it's because I've been researching them like the past few hours. That sounds like a Miranda July short story right there. Yeah, but they're very nice. But you know how they got me too? How? They were like, where the house or the one with the little free library outside. And I'm like, <gasps> I know exactly where that is. Did you see if they complimented <laughs> you from your latest dump? <laughs> I should have told them. I Well, speaking of, great transition, Dylan. Pedro's will remember, last episode I talked about potentially dumping some books. I was considering 10 and I ended up dumping... Dun, 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 seven! Yay! Boo! So... I dumped We Are Not Ourselves, Bridge of Spies, Snow Falling on Cedars, Birdsong, Orphan Train, and A Child in Time, as well as No Turning Back, A History of Feminism, which is the only one that is still in the Little Free Library. Oh, so you moved some units, is what you're saying. Um, And I did, you know, by page of demand, I kept three. I kept Hoot, I Capture the Castle, and Little Bee. So those could still be picked at any time. And then don't ask me if I have any shame because I don't understand the question. Well, I mean, I have some shame. I was walking by the Little Free Library. Yeah. And I saw a copy of Then We Came to the End, and I had to get it. Oh, my gosh. Dylan, please <laughs> explain what happened. Because that wasn't one of the books we talked about dumping, and I wanted to read it again. So this was my book on the podcast. I didn't really like it, so I put it in the Little Free Library. Literally hours later, Dylan came home with it back from the library and be like, I, I want to keep it. <laughs> we both read it. Why do you want to keep it? I just like having books on my shelf. Mm. Um, Andrew, do you have any shame? No. <laughs> so, Bailey, do you have any shame? <sighs> okay. I don't know if So, this wait, could... I do want to remind you, Bailey, you did say you would not have shame until your birthday. Yeah. So, this isn't really shame. I think people mm-hmm. should say it's not, which is I went by that said Little Free Library. There was a book I wanted to read in it. I got it out. I read it and I put it back in the Little Free Library. Does that count as shame? Yes, that counts as shame. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's it's a little ambiguous, but no, you, you no, read the books ambigu- you have. It's not ambiguous. <laughs> I got the shame. Well, I got the book. But I suppose it doesn't add to your list, at least. So that's something. Yeah. Thank you. And speaking of taking away from your list, not only do I not have shame, I read a book <gasps> that was on my list and is book. now no longer on my list. I read Crying in H. Bart by Michelle Zauner. How was um, it? Which... I- it, it was great. It was sad, great. Sad, good. It's sad and good. Cool. Made me want um, Korean food a fair amount. Uh, and no, it was really good. It, yeah, so that one we won't be able to cover on the podcast, but I highly recommend it. The buzz is real. The H is Mart. Yeah, and I read it too. And it's, it is really good. 
Why are you looking at me like oh, okay. that? Okay, so now that Dylan, another man, has said it's okay. No, I really want to read it. The only reason why I haven't is because, number one, we live near Koreatown, and I'm afraid I'm going to eat a lot of Korean food after it. That is true. And number two... Why are you afraid of that, first of all? But sorry, I interrupted <laughs> <laughs> And number two, I, I'm just, I hear it sad, and I just feel like I have to be in the mood. I just read Les Mis, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Billy, you can't use that excuse all year. <laughs> uh, I think I can use it for like three years. Um, but in case, Pedro's, in case you were curious, the book I got and then returned to the Little Free Library was called People We Meet on Vacation. And it's a romance novel that's sort of based on When Harry Met Sally of two friends over 10 years who may or may not fall in love. And it was fine. Three and a half stars, four stars, just so Pedro's know. Oh, I also read a bonus book. I read one of the books that I pre-ordered and then picked up. It's called Anatomy by Dana Schwartz. It's cool. It's a YA book that just came out, and it's about a female biology student. Well, she wants to become a surgeon, but it's 1800s Edinburgh, and they don't want any women there. So she has to appeal to this sexy young gravedigger to get her some bodies so she can practice before the surgeon's exam. Oh, no. But there's a murderer afoot. So, I mean, come on. Who doesn't like that? That sounds pretty good. It was good. I like that one. I think that was everything I wanted for the intro. Do you guys have anything? No, my, my only thing I wanted to bring up was that I was a good little boy who read another book. Ooh. Andrew, you are a good little boy that read another book. Good job. How many stars would you give it? I gave it five stars. No, I, I, I really I really liked it. I yes. recommend anybody who's been on the fence, pick it up. Give it a buy. I know I if you live in the New York area, I think books are, books are magic and Brooklyn still has some signed copies too. Cool. Speaking of magic books, Andrew, I heard that you read a book that may or may not have been magical. I don't know. Maybe it went in one ear and out the other like some white noise. <sighs> I did read a book and describing this book as magical is real, real far from the truth. <laughs> No, this book is sort of about removing magic from the world. Oh, no. um, I don't know if that's that's maybe not fair or accurate, but yeah, it's not a you know it's not a fantasy novel. Yes, I read White Noise by Don DeLillo, favorite of the media studies department at Vassar College, um, <laughs> where all my friends read it, uh, and that's why I bought it because they all seem to like it in college. And yeah, it's a very college media studies novel. Like people in media studies at colleges would like it, or it has to do with media studies. It has to do with media studies, like well. You can see how a media studies professor would be like, put this in there. This is curriculum, baby. <laughs> this is my attempted little summary paragraph, um, which may be tough for this book, and we'll get into why maybe in a little bit. Don DeLillo's White Noise centers on Jack Gladney, uh, though he does go by the initials J-A-K, which he made up to sound more fa fancy. J-A-K Gladney, so still Jack Gladney. Never mind, I've already just been derailed. <laughs> White Noise focuses on Jack Gladney, head of the Hitler department what? at the prestigious College on a Hill. Don't Hold worry on. about it. Hold on. <laughs> Don't. Don't worry about it. College on a Hill. That's the name of the college. That's what they called my college. It's part of the alma mater. You go college on the hill. I thought you said that they were going to call it Hitler College. The lone final <laughs> buffer. Anyway, continue. Uh, no. Yeah, so he had the head of the Hitler department at the prestigious college on a hill. Following him, his family, and his odd circle of acquaintances, we see a year in small town college life, complete with what you'd expect. Uh, students moving in, airborne toxic events, new faculty, and Hitler conferences. Uh, what? Um, <laughs> Yep. The central question of the book is as big and as simple as this. How should we engage with the knowledge that we are all sure to die? Okay, but can we back up a little bit? Um, I, I don't know what you could possibly have a question about. Hitler College? Airborne Toxins? No, he's head of the Hitler Department. Oh, oh sorry. So, Air so, Airborne Toxins? So what'd you major in? Well... Mentioned Hitler. No, it's a big. He's he's like the foremost Hitler scholar in America. He and started Hitler studies. I love how this steals from one of my facts that airborne toxic event is named after them. What's airborne toxic event? The emo band. 
I'm old. So was Airborne Toxic event. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you more. So I wish I had a better explanation for the for the head of the Hitler department. It's just one of the it's one of the many things that Delilah throws in, which he explains a little bit. But if you're looking for like a grand explanation of why that's it, other than like just sort of how he's constructed the story, there's not that much there. But do they just study Hitler's life? Yes. Whenever he talks about preparing for classes, he's like, I'm reading my copy of Mein Kampf. I'm thinking about all the rumors about what happened in the bunker, things like that. Seems like a pretty narrow. (laughs) It is narrow. I should say it is in America post World War Two, the Nazis lost, America won. It's not about him being a Nazi. It's about he's a, he's the head of the Hitler department. Right. Wait. So all that Nazi. This paraphern- is incidental to the book and not that important. <laughs> so all that Nazi paraphernalia around his house is just for work. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't think he does have it. He, like literally, it's just like he's like a history professor who, but he instead of saying I'm uh, like a history professor specializing in World War Two, he says I'm the head. He is literally the head of the Hitler department. From what I can tell from Jack Gladney, our hero, he doesn't. He's not a Nazi sympathizer. Okay. He's just head of the Hitler department. And so to get a little more into plot, if I can, I mean, it, it very much follows this, uh, it, like a year in the life. It starts with the um, students arriving back for the beginning of the school. So it's like an academic year. It ends at the beginning of the next summer. Jack is married to a woman named Babette. They each have children from previous marriages. This is his fifth marriage. So they have a bunch of children in their house, none of which are their like mutual children. And him and Babette are very much in love, but very weird. Um, and... The children are all unique and, and weird in their own way. He has one son named Heinrich, who I think is going to murder everybody in the world eventually. Wait, um, Heinrich? No, don't worry about Hitler. Yeah, yeah, don't worry, don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> so it's hard to like get too much into the plot details here without sort of ruining the experience of reading the book. Not that there's like huge spoilers to have. It's not really that sort of book, but like to go too deep is would be to like cut you off from being able to have the revelations come out as they come out. But basically a- another thing that's going on is that Babette is becoming more and more forgetful. One of her daughters is is very worried about her. She might or might not be on some medication that she doesn't remember taking. So there's that. <laughs> there's that element. Um, and then what ends up concerning the second half of the book other than his like strange interactions day to day is is his fear of death. Both him and Babette are very afraid of dying. They both want to die first, though, because they can't live without the other one, mm. but they're afraid of it. And uh, it concerns... The, the book sort of devolves into examinations on how people engage with that, how different people approach that. He has lots of conversations with his new friend, Murray, who's a new um, faculty member, who is sort of his sounding board and also very strange. Here's the... Okay, I'm, I'm dancing around this. Everybody in this book is weird. Okay. Everybody in this book talks funny. I just want to get in a joke, which is Murray is the head of the Stalin department. (laughs) No, Murray studies car crashes. (laughs) It's one of his things. He also studies Elvis. Everybody, let me just put it out there. Everyone in this book is weird. Jack is like very much the like thing that, the guy who things happen to. He talks to people who are very weird. Everybody talks a mile a minute and knows exactly what they're trying to say to mess with him. And it's that sort of book. It reminded me a lot of reading Crying of Lot 49. It's very sort of in that same family of postmodern pension stuff. This one's a little easier to read. I found like I didn't feel like my head was cracking open, but I definitely felt like my head was starting to, you know, break. Let me just go into my elves and orcs and maybe at the end of this, we'll have some semblance of a, a review of a review that makes sense. There are moments when this book actually can sort of sweep you up and, and reel you in, particularly that happens with the dialogue sequences, which are very much like pow, 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 back and forth, back and forth, very quick. I'll read an example of that. This is a quote on page 26. He's in a car with his son Heinrich. It is raining. The radio said it's not going to rain until later. And he's trying to get Heinrich to admit that it's raining now. <laughs> Look at the windshield, I said. 
is that rain on it or isn't it? I'm only telling you what they said. Just because it's on the radio doesn't mean we have to suspend belief in the evidence of our senses. Our senses? Our senses are wrong a lot more often than they're right. This has been proven in the laboratory. Don't you know about all the theorems that says nothing is what it seems? There's no past, present, or future outside of our own mind. The so-called laws of motion are a big hoax. Even sound can trick the mind. Just because you don't hear a sound doesn't mean it's not out there. Dogs can hear it, other animals, and I'm sure there are sounds even dogs can't hear, but they exist in the air, in waves. Maybe they never stop. High, high, high pitch, coming from somewhere. Is it raining? I said, or isn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't want to have to say. What if someone put it, held a gun to your head? Who? You? <laughs> Big news. Heinrich's 14, I think. 15, maybe. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's funny and it's like abs- it's absurdity. It just seems like satire. Yeah. Yes. And yes. And so that's like an example of it in a, in a good way. For all it's sort of density. It's it's only like a 375 page book, but the whole book is sort of like that. It it was reasonably easy to read. I felt like I was reading a book for smart people, and I felt like I could read it. You Those are, are my people. elves. You are smart people, Andrew. You did, you read the book. Well, you did it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I did book read. Um, uh, let's go into the orcs, which also maybe will let make me figure out exactly what I feel about this book. I think ultimately it's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Like having read this and Pynchon relatively recently, I think that either as a reading populace, we've moved on from this weird style that was popular in the 80s and 70s, or it's just not something that's effective for me. I don't like this like dude is surrounded by people being very weird and like we follow the weird interactions of his day. It just doesn't really work for me. Yeah. I, I just want to say that I know exactly what you mean. And I have come around to accepting that I don't like books that are weird and hard to understand. And white men explain them to me because they studied them in college and feel smart and like them only because they can, quote, understand them. I would agree that I don't think I would like this book. Yeah. And it's it's funny because I definitely agree. And like I could just imagine someone explaining why this book is brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. As I was reading it, I was like, I can just feel someone explaining this to me. I bet there are um, a ton of horrible Goodreads reviews. As someone that had to pull some facts from the Don DeLulo Society, there's a few web pages you guys should see. wonder how many women Uh-oh. are in that society. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Any more orcs? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's plenty of more. Uh, no, so it boils down to like this. The stuff I said above, the, the, the elves that I previously said, those are also the orcs because it's trying to do that all the time. It's like a constant barrage. And I know that some style is something that I'm on record on this podcast as saying is important to me. It's my way in to books sometimes. But this is where it, it falls apart a little bit because the uniformity of style just wasn't it for me. Because everybody sort of came at it with that quick talking way. Everybody immediately takes you back with this weird way of talking. Everybody sort of acts the same way. And then they serve to like help Jack figure out what he thinks about the world. And I, I like when a writer tries something different within the same text and we get to see how style changes affect things. And I think that's maybe more what I like about style as like a way into books. Yeah. Because this was, it was all the same to me. Yeah. It sounds like it would get grading after a while. I understand. It, just everything was trying to be the cleverest thing or like the oddest interaction. Another orc, we, we've sort of touched on this. It's kind of like dude pervy, like old dude pervy. Mm. Women are, are not a little strong suit, I don't think, in terms of writing. Mm. Maybe things would have hit differently in 1985 when this came out. I don't think they would have. But it just like, I, here's actually, I really want to put this quote in. It's on page 171. And it is a perfect distillation of this book being a good thing to 
read that's then ruined by a pervy comment. They are currently experiencing a stressful moment called the Airborne Toxic Event. It's not a spoiler. It is the name of the section of the book. Babette read an ad for diet sunglasses. The old people listened with interest. I went back to our area. I wanted to be near the children, watch them sleep. Watching children sleep makes me feel devout, part of a spiritual system. It is the closest I can come to God. If there's a secular equivalent of standing in a great spired cathedral with marble pillars and streams of mystical light slanting towards two-tiered gothic windows, it would be watching children in their little bedrooms fast asleep. Girls especially. Wait, a man Why says you gotta that? be like that? Yeah, that's Jack. That's our narrator. No, 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 no. No, yeah, no, no, no. See that. So that quote to me contains the thing that made me uncomfortable about the book. Interesting idea. Like the idea of seeing a child sleep is like a holy thing because it calms you down. It like seeing your own child sleep. There's a way to write that, which would be moving. But no, it just seems pervy. At first I was like, yeah, it's, it's nice to watch children sleep. And then no. by the end, no, no, no. Yep. No, 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 no. Um, And so it comes down to this for me. It's just not my thing. It's easier to read than Pynchon. So if you want to try a book like this, I would maybe start with this because it. I felt a little bit less like I needed to read a summary after every chapter to try to figure out what actually happened. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to give it three stars. It's, I think, a two and a half, but I, I, I round up because I don't want the Delilah Society to knock down my door. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Andrew. Here's the thing. Doing this podcast, we're figuring out our wheelhouses. We're figuring out what's not for us. And and this book sounds interminable, and I wouldn't want to read it, but, <laughs> but there are a lot of people who love it. Dylan, do you have any facts about people who love it? So, Donald Richard DeLillo was born November 20th, 1936, in New York. He is very New York. Okay. He is son of Italian-American immigrants. Some of his relatives did not speak English growing up in the Bronx, where he <laughs> pretended to be a sports broadcaster for the Yankees and thought that was going to be his career. He pre- oh, just for fun. Just for you fun. really hit the Bronx there. Look, he he hit the Bronx <laughs> in terms of how New York he was growing up. He actually didn't read a lot growing up. He, he's very adamant about the fact he read comic books mainly and like didn't really read books until he had a job as a parking lot attendant. And instead of making sure people didn't break into cars, he was reading Hemingway and a bunch of Faulkner and stuff. And he fell in love with literature. This is funny because that was Toby's job and that's what Toby did. I think our dad also did that, Andrew. And what did your dad's name? He was name? a security guard, yeah. yeah. And what was your dad's name? That. My dad's name is Don. There you go. Is my dad Don Del- <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Um, how Bronx is he? He graduated from Fordham University. Nice. Go Fords. So I assume he went to the Bronx campus, not the Manhattan yeah. one. Go Hams. And he got a degree in communication arts in 1958. And then he took a job in advertising because he couldn't get one in publishing. So he was a copywriter for a while, actually, for the next eight years. And he finally got his first short story, The River Jordan, in Epoch, Cornell University's literary magazine. Cornell. Heard of it? But because he loved writing short stories so much, he decided to quit his job. Not because he was a writer all of a sudden, just because he wanted to quit his job. Mm -hmm. When he was writing his book, he said, I lived in a very minimal way. My telephone would be $4.20 every month, and I was paying a rent of $60 a month, and I was becoming a writer. So in one sense, I was ignoring the movements of the time. I just wanted to include that to to have the $60 a month rent in New York. That's upsetting. That's what I pay. <laughs> um, but he did get Americana done after four years. Okay. And it was a critical cult hit, but not a huge smash. And this was kind of his way in the 70s, because in the 70s, he was super prolific. I don't know if you know about Don DeLillo's output, but it's basically like one novel every eight to 10 years. But in the 70s, he t- knocked out six novels in eight years. Okay. 
That's Harry Potter. He had speak. things to say, Dylan. He had things to say. <laughs> Including the college football, nuclear war, black comedy, end zone. The rock and roll satire, Great Jones Street. Basically, they're all this kind of postmodernist comedy things about society. End zone one sounds pretty good, actually. It does actually sound pretty good. And in 1975, he married Barbara Bennett, a former banker who turned to become a landscape designer. Now, this is important because once they're married, that's all his personal life stuff. I can kind of find some places on where they moved, but they never have children, and they're still together. So, All right. Good for them. Him and Babs. Cool. Babette. Exactly. And then in 1978, DeLillo got uh, rewarded the Guggenheim Fellowship, one of the many fellowships that he was awarded in his life. If you look through his whole Wikipedia page, it's all just awards he has won. And he used that to move to Greece where he finished uh, his next novels, Amazons, and The Names. So that was a pretty big decade, the 70s. Yeah. But he still wasn't a household name. Until the 1985 publication of his eighth novel, White Noise. And basically, it was a huge smash hit. It earned him a National Book Award for Fiction, where he said during his award ceremony, I'm sorry I couldn't be here tonight, but I thank you all for coming. Cute. Okay. Wait, he, he was actually there? Yeah. Okay. He, that was his acceptance speech. It's a postmodernist acceptance speech, mm. Bailey. Also, among the 39 proposed titles for White Noise were All Souls, Ultrasonic, The American Book of the Dead, Psychic Data, and Mein Kampf. <laughs> Some of those make more sense having just read the book <laughs> than others. He then followed it up with Libra, his second huge hit that everyone knows, talks about. It's about the JFK assassination, but following Oswald. Okay. And he researched a lot. Although one of the things he was saying he researched is like he read half the Warren Report. It's like, shouldn't he have read all of the Warren Why Report? Why just half? Yeah. It, but it's very well researched. It's a huge critically acclaimed hit. But Libra was the uh, book that he started doing interviews because his publisher said, like, you have got to go out there and show your face. You're not as famous enough as Thomas Pynchon and everything to do this. <laughs> and then in 1997, he released the long-awaited novel, The Epic Cold War History underworld uh it's about baseball and the cold war with friend of the podcast martin amos saying and marked the ascension of a great writer and then he followed this up with the body artist in 2001 cosmopolis fallen man point omega zero k just put five years in between each one of those okay and then he just recently made the silence in 2020 and it is a 130 page book double spaced so it's very easy to read and it's basically takes place in 2022 on the eve of the Super Bowl. Weird. When uh, society collapses, when the power goes out everywhere. Why would you, Dylan, why are you saying this? This might happen. What if this happens in a few days? It's 2022 on the eve of the Super Bowl. And if you're listening to this, the Super Bowl is this weekend. Although he did say the Super Bowl was going to be between the Titans and the Seahawks. So can't so get everything wrong right. on both fronts. Seahawks didn't even make the playoffs. Ugh. What a scrub. Also, while he's doing this and racking up wins and awards, he's writing plays, too, including The Day Room, Bala Perisco, and Love Lies Bleeding. Some of these are big. So, plays are hard because some of them are apparently big hits. But the words like, oh, you don't know about those plays? And it's like, I guess. Hmm. Andrew, any of those plays ring a bell? Nope. <laughs> also wrote a script. I, I know he'd written plays, but I don't think they're widely staged anymore. Yeah. And then he also wrote the screenplay for a movie called Game Six with Michael Keaton. If you've seen it, it's... Basically, like, I'm saying this because Michael Keane's in it. It's like Sad Birdman. It's about a playwright on the eve of the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series, losing the World Series. Okay. Which time? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of his books, they have tried to turn his books into movies, including Cosmopolis by David Cronenberg. However, five of his movies are in development right now because we're a 
That's just what happens when you get on this podcast, your movie gets greenlit, <laughs> including White Noise with Adam Driver and Noah Baumbach's going to be coming out next year. Noah Baumbach directing? Sure. Noah Baumbach directing with Greta Gerwig. All right. We'll see. And, <laughs> and Underworld 2 is also being written for Netflix. Well, see, Underworld is like that Michael Sheen and, you know, Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> yes. And speaking of kids, um, in one of the interviews I was reading about, because he really importantly does not have children and does not understand children. Uh, one of his friends, um, I guess he's a literary critic slash essayist, Tom LeClaire, says, my, fr- my kids feel like they were quoted a lot in White Noise. Don observed them around the dinner table on several occasions. And he isn't shy about that kind of setting. He watched my daughter sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, he, um, then this, I don't mean to cast aspersion, maybe children contain multitudes I don't remember having at that age. This, uh, this essayist's kids are real weird if he pulled quotes from them for this book. He, <laughs> The, the essay sounds weird, too. So it might have just been a quirky family. Mm-hmm. And he currently lives in Bronx Village, not Bronx, two separate places. Okay. All the interviews were saying, it's like, well, so is this uh, The Silence, the last book you're writing? And of course, his answer was, I'm not sure I know the answer. It may well be that I won't be returning. But three days from now, I might get another idea. It may be a short story. It may be a novel. I honestly don't know. What I think is that I might try to figure out a possible volume of nonfiction publications. But I'm not sure what's next. That's Don DeLillo. Thank you, Dylan. Excellent, comprehensive facts. I feel like I know him. <laughs> I don't know if I want to. Know. No, no, he seems fine. He seems he seems really curmudgeon. Yeah, and I should say I I did not. I, we've been we've been dunking on Delillo a lot, and there are aspects of this book that I have I think legitimate grievances with. But it was not the worst thing I've ever read, and I did not. <laughs> find myself and I didn't like hate it or wish him anything wish him any evil well good for him let's all join the Don DeLillo society but you know white noise three stars there you go Bailey I know it's the the dead of winter right now but can you bring a little summer into our lives with a book you've read maybe something around the July era it's bad because we live in LA and I forget that it's winter because it's oh so hot yesterday I know it's been so hot out here yes I can bring some July into your lives right now some Miranda July because I read a short story collection by Miranda July called no one belongs here more than you you have to say it like that but do I belong <laughs> here more than you or do, does Dylan belong here more than no me? one um, no, I'm so confused <laughs> So this book I have because this was Dylan's book when we, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> when we merged households. I put it to the side and thought, oh, I want to read that one. And that's how I had Bridge of Spies and then got rid of it. But anyway. Wait. Wait a minute. <laughs> but, you know, I'm glad it was pulled because I don't know if I ever would have necessarily been in the mood. Um, but what it is is a collection of 16 short stories. They are all relatively short. And as it says on the back of the book, they are startling, sexy, and tender. I might replace the word sexy with weird sexually. You'd say full of sex. Full of sex. They each, all those stories follow characters who are pretty odd, I would say. And they sometimes do very strange things or just seem like people you don't want to, you know, meet in a dark alley at night. However, by the end of the story, usually you will find some kind of human connection to them. Whether it's a um, college student who discovers that her professor is married to Madeline Leangle, the author, or a man who finds out that the his coworker who's been trying to set him up with his sister is coworker is actually trying to get with him himself. So I mean, it's hard to go too deep into to the collection without like summarizing all of the stories. But I will just say that like what I like about Miranda July is that she's unexpected. A lot of 
what you're saying about Don DeLillo, it's it's kind of like the good aspects where it, it's absurd. It's sometimes satire. It's just odd. Um, and so you're drawn in and the stories are so short that you can't you can't get the grading aspect of it. Like it's not like sitting down for a very long film or reading a 400 page book of this. You're just like, okay, Miranda, that's fine. And if you didn't like that one story, maybe you'll like the next one. But I found it in general, this makes it sound worse than it is, but just like innocuous, like it's fine. I was reading reviews about Miranda July. (laughs) Uh, They said that she writes in a, writing an email to a friend vibe. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that is it. Yeah, it's very readable in that way. The characters you do relate to eventually. And one thing I thought was interesting is, you know, the first sentence of the story is often very striking, but by the end, we veer far away from it. Like it usually starts in one place and ends up in a very different place, um, which is interesting. I don't know. I don't think it's for everybody. I think people that don't really like experimental content probably wouldn't respond well to it. I will do a quote so you can get a sense. Okay, so this is just, this is at the end of a story called Majesty. Um, It's somebody that works at a charity that does earthquake preparedness. In the reoccurring dream, everything has already fallen down and I'm underneath. I'm crawling sometimes for days under the rubble. And as I crawl, I realize that this was the big one. It was the earthquake that shook the whole world and every single thing was destroyed. But this isn't the scary part. That part always comes right after before I wake up. I am crawling and then suddenly I remember the earthquake happened years ago. This pain, this dying, this is just normal. This is just how life is. In fact, I realized there never was an earthquake. Life is just this way, broken, and I am crazy to hope for something else. So that doesn't really show you necessarily the weirdness, although it's a little bit weird to be like, there's an earthquake, but there's not. But I dream about it, but it's not here, but it was. Um, But you can get a sense of the darkness to it with a sense of hope. It's it's. I'm having a hard time articulating my feelings about Miranda July because here's the thing. What's her deal? Who knows? Um, (laughs) My review, like Andrew said about his book, I think Miranda July is a little bit weird um, and all of her characters are weird, but the stories are fine and enjoyable. And if you have any interest in her or her film, Me, You and Everyone You Know, I think you should read this collection. And I wish her and her husband, Mike Mills, a lot of love and happiness because they are a cute really weird artistic couple. And that's all I have to say. I would say this is a three and a half star book. But unlike Andrew, I'm a jerk and round down. So I'm going to say three stars. Whoa. Okay. Middle of the road for me. But at the same time, I would pick up another one of her collections because I enjoyed it. Dylan, I know that before we get into the facts, I know you've also read this collection, obviously, because I stole it from you. Do you have any thoughts in general about Miranda July or the book? Here's the thing. I was like a huge Miranda July fan in high school. And this was like, I read it in, I think I read this in college. And I remember it being a huge impact on me in terms of like, I normally don't like super avant-garde things. I think this is a good stepping stone because like, she does a really good job of being super weird, but these stories are being almost too quirky. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, there is always like a very oh, that is a real human emotion, or oh, that is a real thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a thing where you do have to be kind of on that wavelength, or you have to give her a lot of rope. Mm -hmm. Because she will make a very quirky and twee (laughs) roundabout thing of doing it. Yeah, if you concentrate on the weird stuff and only remember the weird stuff, you're not going to connect with it. You have to think about the the human connection but i think she does a really good job and especially when i read it when i first was in la living in an apartment with a very weird roommate that i didn't talk to at all she does a really good job of 
that feeling when you're alone in your apartment and like you just think weird thoughts the whole time. It's like, wow, I am so weird. <laughs> she nails that of like isolated characters. And as I was reading it, you came up to me and like didn't quote it, but like referenced it. And you must have read this like 12 oh, years yeah. ago. So it stuck in your head. So that's a yeah, good some time. of the short stories like I remember like a while ago, just on how simple they are and how nice like the characters are and everything. So yeah. I give it four or five stars just because. Yeah, that's fine. I love short stories and I love Miranda July's work, but. We get it. You love Miranda July. God, just marry our God. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but do you have any facts about her? Oh, boy. Guess <laughs> oh, what? you don't have any? Guess what, guys? Miranda okay. July is basically a Miranda July character. Yeah, that sounds about right. Miranda July was born in Barry, Vermont, February 15th, 1974. It's almost her birthday, but not, she was not born in July. Okay. Is her real name July? Oh, boy. Well, she was born Miranda Jennifer Grossinger. Oh. She changed her last name to July when she was 15 after a character from a short story that was written by one of her high school best friends, Johanna Fateman of the band La Tigre. So the character okay. was named Miranda July and she's like, I want to be named Miranda her, The character's July. last name was July and it was her high school friend. It's like, that's my last name. And she kept it and she legally changed her name to it in her 20s. All right. And that friend would go on to be in the pop and the seminal queer indie pop band La Tigre. Oh, actually, I do know that band. Yep, yeah. you were about to roll your eyes at me. It's like, <laughs> nope, that's just how Miranda July rolls. Uh-huh. Her father, oh boy, her father was professor and author Richard Grossinger, a professor at the University of Southern Maine. Oh, wait, really? USM. He taught at University of Maine, Portland, Gorham, before I turned to University of Southern Maine, but I figured nobody would care about that enough, so I just simplified it. Does that mean she grew up in Maine? Yep, for, <gasps> no, until she was six. But her father taught <laughs> interdisciplinary studies, including alchemy, Melville, Hitler, cl- classical Greek, Jungian psychology, and ethno-astronomy. I should have looked up what that was. That's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Grossinger was not born Richard Grossinger either. He was born Richard July. <laughs> I was going to make the same joke, really. <laughs> he was named, he grew up in Manhattan. <laughs> With the surname Richard Towns, but someone told him, a family member told him that he was actually related to the Grossingers, the owners of the Catskill, so he changed his name legally to that, and then it turned out he is not related to the Grossingers. Well, then he can't complain when Miranda's like, I know, I'm going to exactly. change my name too, and he's like, okay. She actually was raised in Berkeley, California. Sup. See, that so, tracks for me. Stole that story from you. And basically, she just turned into Max Fisher from Rushmore, because when she was 16, she wrote and directed The Lifers about longtime prisoners at women prisons. It cast 20 Latina actresses um, reading the letters back and forth when she was 16. Again. Was this movie like popular? People saw it? No, no, not a movie. A play. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. She later attended the University of California, Santa Cruz. Go banana slugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she stopped attending in her second year, probably because they realized like, we can't teach you. <laughs> she then relocated to, guess where she... Silver Lake. Nope. Um, Area 51. <laughs> to Portland. Portland, Oregon. Oh, Portland, Oregon makes sense. Uh, okay. Yep. I thought she was going to go to Brooklyn. Yeah. She relocated to Portland, Oregon to become a performance artist. She also happened to be going there at the right time, and she joined the Riot Girl scene. This explains why she's in Portlandia, also for a lot of other reasons. But she was really involved with her whole zine scene and like designing media stuff for them. And she was signed to a label, but only doing spoken word stuff. So at what point did you become a fan of her? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Back when she was in Portland, duh. Okay. I saw her original play. 
Uh-huh. You saw the lifers six yep. times. She claims she has not worked a day job since she was 23. But before then, she worked as a waitress, a tastemaker for Coca-Cola, where there was a weird story how she got paid 25 grand for thinking of the idea Coca-Cola 2 as a title for it. What? I, what? How does she get? These all sound like short stories. How would she get that job? She was also a locksmith and is capable of picking car locks. And she also worked as an exotic dancer. Well, I mean, I believe that. <laughs> That's the easy one. <laughs> While there, she developed the internet site Learning to Love You More with Harold Fletcher. While she was an exotic dancer or while she was in Portland? Uh, A little bit of all of it. When she was in Portland. And the thought of it, and this was a lot of her early work, was based on like connecting artists. The point is that you would be, you would go to this website if you're an artist, it would invite you to do a prompt, and then you post the prompt. And some of the tasks include recreate a poster you had as a child or make a paper replica of your bed. This was bought by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. She must be making a lot of money somehow doing this. Wait, so it's a website that gives you prompt, like craft prompts? Yeah, okay. and then it posts them. I mean, sure. That sounds See, cool. See, now that doesn't sound crazy, but I'm sure back in uh, the early 2000s, this must have been weird. Yeah, maybe we've been in the pandemic too long. Like, yeah, I can make a paper mache bed. Sure. I know, that tracks. <laughs> all the while, she is writing short stories throughout all this. The problem is nailing down what she is doing at what time. Mm-hmm. And she says she's always considers herself a writer first. Okay. Like, sorry, she claims she's a storyteller first. She says she's a little bit if you're around filmmaking and everything and she just likes writing short stories. So her first short story, The Boy from Lamkeen, which I think is in there, was published in 2005. And then, of course, another short story, Something That Needs Nothing, was published in The New Yorker. So she started having a few stories with The New Yorker. Both of these are in, in this book. Boom, boom. And after being rejected twice to the Sundance Labs, she got accepted. That's when she finished her feature film, Me, You, and Everyone We Know. That is when I became a fan of her. I saw it, loved it. Um, might have shown it to a high school class when they asked me to pick a movie. Wait, you showed it at high school? Yes. Let's not talk about it. Can we talk? Okay. It's mentally... There's some scenes that are not appropriate. Yep. You got to skip over those scenes. It still made sense. Oh, whatever. People get that tattoo though, you know. They do. It was a smash indie hit. And fun fact, Roger Ebert calls it one of the top five movies of the 2000s. You know, it really does encapsulate 2005 for me though. <laughs> I think I, I, I like the movie as well. I did not fanboy over her. However, I did like it. She also directed her follow-up movies, The Future, in 2011 and Kajillionaire in 2020. I haven't seen The Future, actually, but I saw Kajillionaire and I really liked it. While working for the screenplay for The Future, she procrastinated by making another book (laughs) uh, called It Chooses You, where she went on the penny saver in L.A. and wrote stories about all the people that she met. Okay. Yeah, checks out. Back to the film, though, me and everyone would know, it's also important because it got into Sundance. It was in the Sundance Labs. And while she was there, she met the other filmmaker that had a film there, Mike Mills. Oh, that's how they met? With a thumbsucker. Uh, that's cute. They met at a party. She wore a yellow dress, he recalls, and it, he watched her do a Q&A. And the next day, she was so strong and declarative, I fell in love immediately. They got married in the summer of 2009 at Mills House in Nevada Hills. That is very sweet because they're both, I think, really well suited for each other. We don't need to get into it too much. I will just say that I really like Mike Mills's work. I guess I'm a fangirl of Mike Mills and you can be the fanboy of um, Miranda July. Yeah. And um, Who do I get to be a fan of? Um, their um, child. Their child, Hopper, yes. who was born on March 2012. You might have seen the proxy of him in his new movie, Come On, Come On. In oh, Mike Mills' new movie, Mike. Come On, Come On. And they currently live in Silver Lake. Everybody should see Come On, Come On. It's very good. Also, the uh, if you guys need help understanding her, The Onion wrote an amazing article in 2012. Miranda July called before Congress to explain exactly what her whole thing is. I mentioned this because there's actually a really good 
interview with her from Idaho Public Radio where they show her that. <laughs> the Onion article and say like, so what do you do? She says, I think everyone has been told that they should specialize in the thing they're great at, but it took me so long before anybody told me I was great at anything. So I ended up trying a lot of things. I was never the kid who said, let me see how much I can alienate everyone with how weird I've been. I was more like, how can I hide the truth in something that feels more comfortable than the truth? <laughs> but that is Miranda July. Thank you for your excellent facts, Dylan. Well done, Dylan. If you want a good sense of her, just go on her Instagram immediately. Oh, and be yeah. like, I get it. There's a lot of interpretive dancing on her Instagram. Yes. Um, but, you know, yeah, three stars. No one belongs here more than you. Three stars. Or, you know, four and five stars, depending. This week, Dylan, you have a game for us, I believe. I hope so. I do. Okay. Andrew. Ooh, I'm excited. I always like getting to play. <laughs> Yay. I like to play. I tried to find something that Don DeLillo, 80-year-old man, and Miranda July, 50-year-old hipster, uh, had in common. Weird things. Weird things, exactly. And more importantly, weird, divisive writing styles. A lot of their books have been huge critical hits. However, a lot of people just don't get it. Sure. So this is called Everyone's a Critic. Okay. What I did was I scoured the internet for bad reviews of both these writers. Oh, I like it already. Okay. I took out the names of the authors, so I'll call them the author or the book, mm -hmm. although some of them might be Miranda July's movies, too. Okay. And your job is to guess the author. Okay. Just tell me who the critic is referring to. Donna Miranda. Yep. Okay. Um, I love it. Let's do it. And so the way you do call out, it stinks. It stinks. It stinks. Okay. It stinks. Let's play Everyone's a Critic. Quote, doom, doom, doom. beware the book of ideas, particularly when the ideas come first and all the novel stuff, like the story, comes second. It stinks. It stinks. Bailey. Don DeLillo. That is Don DeLillo's Cosmopolis in a review by Walter Kim of the New York Times. Let the record show I was also going to say Don DeLillo. Quote, eccentricities and uncountable as the sands of the Sahara drift and blow through this book, piling up in dunes that must be scaled by characters and readers alike. It stinks. Andrew. Miranda July. That would be for Miranda July's The First Bad Man from Laura Miller of The Guardian. I feel like it could have been either. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's the point of this. I think that's why the game is hard. <laughs> Although flashes of the author's extraordinary gifts for language can be found in the depiction of the surreal events, the remainder of the story feels tired and brittle. It stinks. Bailey. Miranda July. It is Don DeLillo's The Fallen Man oh. in a review by Michiko Kakatuni of the New York Times. Okay. All right. So we're one for one. One for one. The experience of reading the author's work makes you feel like one of the author's characters. Distant, confused, catatonic, drifting to dream worlds, missing dentist appointments, forgetting the me meanings of basic words, and staring at everyday objects as if they were holy relics. It stinks. Andrew. That's got to be DeLillo. It is DeLillo for Point Omega by Sam Anderson of the New York Magazine, who not only wrote a bad review of Point Omega, but then decided to write a bad review of every book he ever wrote. <laughs> Okay. It was a long, bad review. Yeah. I mean, that was a, I don't probably feel as strongly as that that reviewer, but it was a pretty accurate uh, encapsulation of how one feels while reading a Don DeLillo book. <laughs> <laughs> that's a guy. That's a guy that's read Don DeLillo. Class-based bohemian ideology, in the work that expresses with a perfectly oddball plot. As the author emphasizes perception over action, they explore feelings rather than deliver the big empty con. It stinks. It stinks. Bailey. I'm going to say Miranda July. It is Miranda July. Me, you, and everyone we know? It's Kajillionaire. Oh. Armand White's review from the National Review. You guys might know Armand White as the critic that 
It will always give, whenever you see a Rotten Tomatoes thing rated 99%, he is always the guy. Is he the one that ruined Paddington too? Yep. How dare he? <laughs> While the author does not appear to aim for mockery and claim uh, to find the eccentrics moving, these encounters are too telescoped to say much beyond, aren't people weird? Uh, it, it stinks. Andrew. This could truly be either of them, but I think it's Miranda July. It is Miranda July. It chooses yes. you. <laughs> I would yes. guess that. Too, yes. Yeah. By Lionel Shriver of Slate. Okay. And now, Bailey, you can either tie the game or Andrew, you can win it. All right, let's do this. But here, the metaphors are like wrecking balls. The author is so obsessed with their characters, might theorize about the discerning world that they forget they might actually feel some things too. It stinks. Bailey. Don DeLillo. It is for the silence. <gasps> that means that neither of you stink. It's a tie game. Andrew, Yay. we smell good. We are nice to smell. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, good game, Dylan. Good game, Dylan. Um, Dylan, it's a, your time to shine again. It's the time on the podcast where you choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Now, Dylan, I don't want you to react to what I'm saying because I don't want your hand tipped. But if I could get a book that's like not a dude or dad book, like Band of Brothers is a dad book, White Noise is a dude book, could I get something <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the, oh, the I fault hear. is perhaps with your react. list. <laughs> I have a varied and interesting list. <laughs> well, Andrew, it's speaking of... The Super Bowl of 2022 and football. <laughs> oh, no. I hope you have your gear ready for football. That's right. Number 35, How Soccer Explains the World, An Unlikely Theory of Globalization by Franklin Foer. And you can't blame me for putting that on your list. <laughs> <laughs> this is a book I see. This is why I'm too proud to take books off my list. But this is why I should. <laughs> I'm actually interested in this book. I love soccer. I bought this book before I got into soccer and into the in, in the to the degree I am now. It's older, and I think it probably isn't true anymore, or like things have moved on. But hey, we're gonna read it. It's not a doorstop. It'll be fine. Definitely a dad book. Uh, what about for me? Do I have a dad book? Well, I mean, in the fact that all dads die eventually. Dark. Dark. Kind of like. Number 25, The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Sterling. Oh, I just bought this book. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Good deal. Um, I'm excited for it. I believe it's like a gothic horror, but it just came out. Um, and so we'll see. Exciting. So that means in two weeks, Toby's reading The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, and I will be reading The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Sterling. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast. And if you like what you heard today, there are a couple ways you can help us out and find more listeners, um, one of which is to leave a review or a rating. This is particularly true in Apple Podcasts, but it's true in whatever way you listen. It helps more people find the pod. But the number one way for people to find our podcast is through word of mouth. So tell a friend, tell your best friend. Tell your worst enemy. Tell whoever you find that we're a bunch of weirdos and you can listen to us talk. Thanks to Andrew and Dylan for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, to Toby for following his dreams, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. Oh, I get to say books, 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 books. <laughs>